This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. The Knicks, in the glory days of the Knicks, I can remember going, I was living in Chicago and he was playing pro basketball, and I'd go to that arena to watch the Knicks beat the Bulls. That was pre-Michael Jordan, of course. But it was always a pleasure to go and watch Bill play. Of course, I knew him best as a U.S. Senator, Senator for three terms from New Jersey. So that's the resume. But let me say a little about the man, because the resume tells you certain things, but they're more personal things that tell you more. When I was Secretary of State, he was in the Senate, and it just sort of emerged that we tended to have periodic breakfast together. And the reason it was so important for me was that Bill Bradley was the kind of senator who would get out around the world personally. He didn't go on congressional delegation visits that were boondoggles. He went and he worked and he talked to people of all kinds. And he turned out to be the kind of person that went out and got facts for himself. He was interested in what is really going on, what people's views are. So that when he came to a judgment about something, and I found he was an independent thinker, sometimes I thought too independent, but he thought for himself, and he gathered information for himself. And then when he came to a judgment, it was solidly based. In any kind of organization, U.S. Senate, or whatever community you're in here at Stanford, or wherever, we all know that when there's some important issue that comes up and you're struggling at it, there are always a few people, maybe one, two, three, four, that people kind of gravitate to and they say, I wonder what Bill thinks. He was that kind of a senator. So, Bill Bradley, for my money, is, starts off the Rhodes Scholar, the man of intellect. He's got a terrific mind and brain. He has tremendous energy. You've got to have energy to do the things that he has done. When he came here to Stanford, he has an office here. But he also has a personal life and a political life. So I suppose a lot of people would just sort of operate their political life out of their Stanford office, not Bill. He established an office of his own, paid for it, hires his people, does that business there, does Stanford business in his office at Stanford. So it's very common as people look at the political scene and the state, see the way money is handled and the way people comport themselves. There's this saying, everybody does it. Well, everybody doesn't do it. Bill Bradley doesn't do it. He is absolutely straight, up and up guy. What you see is what you get. So he has a very high character. 
And as I said earlier, he's a person who believes in being informed on subjects before he comes to a judgment about them. I've seen him play basketball. I've seen him in the Senate when really tough issues are there and the whole town is struggling on issues of high policy. So there's a lot of pressure on the basketball court. There's a lot of pressure in these other scenes. So we have seen him perform under pressure. The American people have. He's a cool head. He's a great man, and it's a privilege for me to introduce to you Senator Bill Bradley. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Secretary Schultz, for that uh, very kind introduction. I mean, one of the good things about being at Stanford, in addition to being on a campus where the basketball team is 18 and zero, um, <laughs> is um, having George Schultz just a short distance away, uh, a man I tremendously respect, and I'm very honored that he would be here today to uh, introduce me uh, for this day's lecture. Uh, this is the second Payne Lecture in a five-part series uh, entitled In Search of the New American Narrative. I want to thank those of you who responded to my first lecture with comments and suggestions. Since this is a work in progress, your letters and emails and personal conversations have approved my original draft. I invite your suggestions again, aware that the strength and wisdom that all of us possess together is greater than the musings of one person. In the first lecture, I pointed out that inherent in the American idea is the chance for each generation, through words and public innovation, to redefine what it means to be an American. In the past, during moments of rapid change, when people needed a narrative to understand where we were and where we were going, leaders uh, such as Lincoln, Wilson, and the Roosevelts provided it. Today, the need for redefinition is equally great. I suggested in that first lecture six new aspects of our current reality. First, the extent of our economy's globalization. Second, the far-reaching implications of technological change, especially information technology and biotechnology. Third, the circumstance of America as the dominant power in the world, just when it seems aspirations for worldwide peace are accelerating. Fourth, the urgent need to help parents help their children who are caught in the midst of changing family structures and the economic necessity for both parents to work several jobs. Fifth, the great yearning in our society among the churchless and people of all faith for some meaning in their lives that is deeper than the material. And sixth, the loss of interest in the political process precisely when only a vibrant democracy offers the unity, strength, and wisdom necessary to lead a world in the midst of epical change. I pointed out that American history offers us guidance on how to deal with these new moments. 
In particular, I suggested we should draw confidence from our history of pushing the boundaries and everything from the westward advancement of the frontier to the emergence of feminism. And second, from our capacity periodically in American history to see the whole and by so doing to recognize connections among apparently disparate phenomena or events. Finally, I posited that American society was a three-legged stool, private sector, government, and civic society. And to understand the six new aspects of our times, I suggested first that we have to rely more on the untapped potential of our civic sector, and second, that we need a new kind of leadership that is more modest and less heroic, yet deeply rooted in clear-sighted principle. Today's lecture will deal with the sixth aspect of newness, the current state of American democracy. We live in a time when the democratic ideal seems to have triumphed worldwide. In 1996, 61% or 118 of the 193 countries in the world were democratic. In 1986, that number was 41%. Everywhere we look, in Russia, Argentina, Korea, Turkey, societies are deciding national questions by elections. Meanwhile, in the defining irony of our times, here in the U.S., more and more Americans seem to have lost interest in fulfilling the most basic act of citizenship, voting. In 1996, in the presidential elections, only 49% of the eligible voters actually voted. 100 years earlier, in 1896, 80% of the eligible voters voted. What has happened to produce this drastic drop in participation and what can be done about it? To understand democracy today in America, we have to understand its historical roots, many of which uh, date to ideas developed centuries before the founding of our country. The root of the word democracy is demos, Greek for people. Democracy is the form of government that allows the people to have a voice in determining how they're ruled. They do it through the ballot box, their own voice, and in assemblies of like-minded citizens. From the beginning, Americans recognized the importance for democracy of religious faith and protected its varied worship, no less than George Washington, in his two farewell addresses, one to the army and one to the country, emphasized the connection. Between elections, democracy implies that people express themselves through social movements and local organizations to shape their local communities and influence their government. From the time of the American Revolution, American politics has been a tug of war between individual liberation and communal obligation between a yearning for freedom and a desire for order. When individual liberation dominated, we pushed the boundaries of what had gone before. During those times, slavery was abolished, the right to vote expanded, full civil rights were guaranteed for black Americans, and women attained equality under the law. When concerns of order predominated, the weight of law and custom set limits on the path and speed of liberation. In the late 19th century, the effect, if not the purpose of such limitations, 
was to protect privilege of certain economic classes and racial groups. Other times it was to curtail what seemed threatening to the religious orthodoxy of the day. And every time it was done in the name of stability. The founding fathers had justified the American Revolution by reference to natural rights, which inhered in the individual and which no one could give up simply by joining a civil society, such as the English at the time of the Revolution. The Declaration of Independence was the vehicle to reclaim those original or inalienable rights and to entrust them to the new American government. From the beginning, the founders' practical objective was to prevent the emergence of an American king. They designed the machinery of democracy with its separation of powers between the levels and among the branches of government to prevent a small group of plotters or a fleeting majority from seizing control. They recognized the sovereignty of the people, yet through representative democracy, they assured that the people would rule only indirectly. The presidential election of 1824 raised questions about the basic fairness of such system. Andrew Jackson won the popular vote for president that year, but didn't have sufficient electoral votes. The Constitution provided that such an election would be declared, determined, in the House of Representatives. There, John Quincy Adams made a backroom deal with Henry Clay, in which he promised Clay, Secretary of State, in exchange for his help, Clay gave it, and Adams won the presidency. The defeat of Jackson revealed vividly that the mechanistic government structure was far from responsive to the popular will. Four years later, when Jackson easily won the presidency, he said, the first principle of our system is that the majority is to govern. And then he ushered in a golden era of robust democracy. At a time when violence in the country proliferated, when money-making seemed a national obsession, when there existed no leadership class beyond merit, only politics seemed to hold things together. White males immersed themselves in the practice. They debated, balloted, caucused, and marched. The state constitutional convention became their venue and the theory of natural rights their weapon. Surely if God's design for democracy meant anything, the right to vote belonged not just to those who held property. God wouldn't mock the poor. He would lift them up and give them a voice in shaping their future and extend the vote to white males without property. The abolitionists, seeing their opening, elaborated that if white men without property could vote, why couldn't black men? And since there was no slavery in the world that God created, there should be no slavery in America. The Whigs responded to Jackson's challenge by opposing constitutional conventions and saying, in effect, that natural rights were a fairy tale. Men were born into political societies subject to law. That was their natural state, historian Dan Rogers has written. They did not possess rights as men might possess a horse or a chest of clothes. They did not possess their governments, nor in truth did they make them, except as agents of God and history. With the advent of the Civil War, the debate shifted conclusively from rights to obligations. Having been the basis for Southern secession, the word rights no longer paraded its revolutionary lineage. 
Instead, it fused with duty in the midst of war to spell a new abstraction, nation. By the end of the 19th century, the forces of law and custom had mounted a powerful counterattack on individual liberation. Constitutional conventions had been contained by pre-convention committees of lawyers who limited permissible discussion and even specific amendments. The Supreme Court invalidated hundreds of state and federal laws, including the federal income tax, railroad rate regulation, and antitrust legislation. The judges also established principles such as liberty of contract, which excluded wages from economic regulation, public purpose, which limited how tax dollars could be spent. Slowly, these and other doctrines, legal doctrines, became a bulwark against the progress for the powerless. And their very complexity made their controlling authority inaccessible to non-lawyers. Court verdicts had superseded the people's laws. The popular will was further circumscribed by political scientists who called popular sovereignty a contradiction in terms and inalienable rights and abandoned theory. Rights derived not from a state of nature, they said, but from the political state into which they were born. To the progressives at the beginning of the 20th century, the task was to formulate policies which served the broad public interest. Still, they remained strangely detached from the people, these progressives. They didn't trust them or their legislators, what with their log rolling and election promising. They put faith in commissions of experts who would calibrate policy in response to a problem. Some even implied that in an ever more confused world, only experts could truly see the public interest. They seemed to be saying that the state was higher than the people, government more important than democracy. As historian Robert Weavey said, in the 19th century, democracy shaped the state. In the 20th century, the state shaped democracy. At the same time, the progressive's basic dream was rooted in a kind of Protestant morality. Similar to the dream of the Whigs nearly 70 years earlier, it was an attempt to channel freedom. They justified their actions against monopolies, party bosses, and squalid tenements by an appeal to the common good, the social will, the nation, it was a language of idealism rooted in the social gospel, and it got many people to believe. They filled stadiums to listen to Theodore Roosevelt or Woodrow Wilson preach it. It was not the language or the spirit of Jackson's people, crude, robust, hopeful, taking control of the government. Rather, it was the indirect idea that the people's role consisted of ratifying the experts' recommendations for a new law or regulation that would promote the general welfare. Representata representational government, Woodrow Wilson said, has had its long life and excellent development not in order that common opinion, the opinion of the street, might prevail, but in order that the best opinion, the opinion generated by the best possible method of general counsel, might rule affairs. This somewhat paternalistic language of hope and promise shattered on the hard reality of World War I. The progressives' attitude had failed to account 
for the horror of war. The trenches, the slaughter, symbolized the loss of innocence for America. Woodrow Wilson asserted that the war had been waged for ideals, yet the maimed English, French, and Italian soldiers who returned home were under no illusions. At Versailles, Wilson, armed with an impressive committee of experts to advise him on countless policy issues, found in the Allied leaders not the grateful Democrats he had expected, but shrewd, calculating politicians who knew their national interests well. And Wilson mistook the crowds that greeted him as support for the power and popularity of his ideas for world democracy. Wilson in America might have fought the war for democracy, but the Allied leaders waged the peace for land and power. In fact, in the wake of the peace conference, as a dying president stumped America in support of the League of Nations, it was as if idealism was dying with him. In the mid-20s, Babe Ruth, Prohibition, and the pursuit of the material defined America's obsessions. By the publication of Charles Beard's History of America, with its emphasis on the power of economic forces, and the revival of interest in Madison's 10th Federalist Paper, with its disquisition on the permanence of faction, politics had become little more than a collision of interest groups. By the New Deal and in the midst of depression, the economic players, labor, capital, farmer, became the political process. To talk about general abstractions such as the nation blocked consideration of real life suffering. Reform of the, factional, of the factual circumstance could only be obtained by setting out a hypothesis about a particular reality and then experimenting to see if you were right. The concrete replaced the abstract. Gone were the dreams of Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. Gone was the unification that came from common values forthrightly expressed. Social science had replaced grand abstraction. Areas of expertise became more and more specialized with smaller realities broken into even, many, even smaller many realities. The people learned to look up to the person above them for expertise, not out to the person next to them for power. Public opinion itself was born as a subject to be scientifically assessed. Polling increasingly guided our commerce through advertising, our war effort through propaganda, our understanding of the truth through public relations. The interest mobilized all the methods of this new science to dominate the political process, even as the process itself adapted. The Constitutional Convention gave way to the Congressional hearing, which was established almost explicitly as a showcase for the interests. The clash of interest groups became perpetual since someone was always dissatisfied, anxious to fight next year. So instead of integration, there was an insistent and continuous fragmentation. World War II came along and united us once more. And after it was over, the common non-material objective of the U.S. government for 45 years was to win the Cold War. In both instances, we were able to see the whole internationally in a way that eluded us domestically. The civil rights revolution, rekindling the natural rights argument, reawakened briefly but intensely the quest for individual liberation. 
Then the movement veered away from rights to power sharing with all its complicating implications. As Weeby has written, in Lincoln's day, the government was expected to enact the people's will. Now it was supposed to look after the people's needs. It should not be surprising that these changes eroded social cohesion. The language of faith gave way to the language of quantification. Numbers, particularly as they related to trade and barter, came to the center of public discourse. The conflict of politics, the conflicts in politics were no longer between royalty and rights-bearing revolutionaries, not between lawyers asserting the need for communal obligation and the people bent on individual liberation. Instead, politics boiled down to which group had the clout to obtain its desires and who got what part of the economic pie. The prime narrative was what I want, not what we can do together. The national political debate never developed a rich language for what we share beyond the stale moralism of the progressives, and even that had less and less influence. When shock TV, family disintegration, and the rising violence hit America in the 1980s, the forces which expressed what we had in common were not sufficient to withstand the forces which expressed our differences. Today, instead of an open conversation about what we expect government to do, we now have either reflexive opposition to government or rhetorical flourishes followed by tiny demonstration progress, projects. Instead of deciding where we want to go and how we will get there, we defend our own political territory. Instead of a candid discussion about what role teachers, police, park rangers, government actuaries, and social workers will play in getting us to our national destination, we hesitate to offend any interest group with more than 50% approval rating in the polls. American democracy increasingly seems like Gulliver, tied down by the Lilliputians. So, specifically, what is wrong? with politics today. First, there's too much money in politics. It distorts the functioning of our democracy. In a nation that champions the principles of one person, one vote, our current system gives those who raise or make big contributions larger clout than the rest of us. In the 1996 election, there were over $2 billion spent on political campaigns. The effect of so much money raises doubts about why legislative leaders vote a certain way and how executive leaders use their large discretionary powers. While there are many elected leaders who are scrupulously honest, they are trapped in a bad system in which it's virtually impossible to prove their honesty. In addition, a U.S. congressman or senator must raise money continuously. That takes time. For example, the U.S. Senate race in my state of New Jersey cost about a minimum of $7 million. That's $20,000 per week for six years. In 1994, a Democratic candidate for a U.S. Senate seat visited my office. I didn't think he had much of a chance against the Republican incumbent, but he wanted to talk, and so I was there. He felt he could win. Why, I asked. Because I can raise money, he said. How, I asked. He said, every day since January, it was then now August, 
I've sat in my room for six hours a day with two great staffers handing me the names and telephone numbers of people I don't know who I call cold for money. I like doing it. So far I've called 4,234 people and I know I'm going to win. He lost. But look at how much time he wasted. Instead of engaging his potential constituents in a dialogue about their lives or thinking through policy positions for an increasingly complex world, he was on the phone dialing for dollars. Every hour, a U.S. senator leaves his office, walks down the hallway, takes the elevator to the first floor, walks out of the government building to a cubicle a block away that his campaign staff has rented so he can legally call for money is an hour that he's not spending on the public's business. The fundraising excesses by both parties that burst before the public after President Clinton's re-election simply re-emphasized <laughs> simply re-emphasized what people already feel that politicians are controlled by special interest money. Then when political leaders defend those excesses by saying that they're only doing what other politicians do, no more, no less, the defense, besides being untrue, has the effect of demeaning all politicians, especially those who take great pains to be squeaky clean. To the public, politics then becomes not the architecture of our common purpose, but a kind of money-grubbing, lowest common denominator activity that the really talented in society avoid at all costs. A further result of the role of money plays in our politics is that all of us pay more taxes than necessary. When lobbyists representing corporate interests obtain on a regular basis subsidies, tax loopholes, and favorable, favorable regulatory rulings for their clients, they increase the budget deficit the same as if the federal government collected taxes from you and me and sent a check to them. If there are fewer subsidies and loopholes, taxes could be cut without increasing the deficit. The path to lower taxes remains blocked by grateful or expectant special interests with deep pockets full of contributions. Speaker Gingrich and others say that the money we spend on politics is insufficient. They argue that Americans spend as much advertising antacids as all of us do together spending, spend on politics. Shouldn't politics be at least as important as antacids, they ask? My response is that money is different, uh, democracy is different from antacids, and that the comparison demeans democracy. Another response goes to what you get for your money. If we divided the total spent on politics by the number of people in America who vote, it would equal about $17 per voter. Is that too much? I'd say no. If we got more for it than negative TV ads and personal innuendo, and if it actually came not from interests who wanted access, but from each American who gave the $17 to assure an untainted democracy. The second thing wrong with American politics today is the media. They rarely provide citizens with sufficient information about public decision-making, and they almost never establish a context for understanding big public decisions. They overemphasize the personal, the sensational, the intimate, the violent. 
The credo, the six o'clock TV news, if it bleeds, it leads. If it thinks, it stinks. For example, from 1993 to 1996, murder in America dropped 20%. But coverage on the local TV news went up 720%. Yet the media's obsession with violence is not a new shortcoming. Its most significant recent failure deals with foreign news since the end of the Cold War. At a time when our economy is more interdependent with the world, national TV coverage of foreign affairs has plummeted, leaving Americans less and less informed about the matters crucial to their own economic survival. And when TV does present international issues, it rarely gets beneath the headline or the point-counterpoint of competing sound bites. Democracy works only when, when citizens can see the whole and can act to further it. If media fragments reality into bite-sized morsels and plays to our worst instincts as human beings, is it any wonder that the coarseness of political life drives the thoughtful to the sidelines and enables the extremists to play at center court? I mean, these days, even terrorists have a media strategy. Everyone tries to manipulate everyone else. Truth suffers. Candor disappears. Too many reporters think the search for the lurid or the sensational is their job. And in some selfish, selfish sense, it is. After all, it catches the eye of their editors. And increasingly, editors are being asked by publishers to sell more newspapers or airtime rather than simply report factually on events or educate their readers. Doing both seems very rare. Yet some of the brightest people in America work for newspapers. Editors struggle daily with how to be thorough and truthful. Many political journalists are fair, even incisive. They understand how they shape opinion through what they choose to emphasize. Television often follows the lead of the print story. And most of them avoid the cheap shots available to anyone in their position. When they support big picture reform, they improve its chance of passage. But as a group, political pundits in this country command more respect than the quality of their work deserves. Too many of their observations and stories are superficial, providing little context, little historical insight, little enlightenment of any sort, and reveling in hyperbole. They wouldn't do that if the public didn't buy it. But if we're not careful, we could be in a race to the bottom with the lowest common denominator determining airtime and newspaper coverage. Well, for the person who decides to give a part of his or her life to public service, the media becomes increasingly a relevant factor. Any candidate for governor or senator must be prepared to have his or her life reviewed. Any candidate for president must expect his or her life to be turned upside down. When the red-hot media burn is in progress, it seems that nothing escapes its flames. The reporters are waiting at each stop on the campaign schedule just to see them, let alone to hear them, shortens your breath, dries up your voice, turns your face hot, tightens your chest, makes you feel like an average guy about to be hit by the heavyweight champion. Depending on how much money a newspaper or television network puts behind a developing story, 
In other words, how many reporters assigned, how much travel allowed, how, much, how big a research budget is set aside. There is little factual information about your life that cannot be acquired. Any misdemeanor conviction can be found out at a county or state courthouses. A speeding ticket will be unearthed in a computer search of the records in a state motor vehicle department. Any mortgage or property tax records or liens against property can be discovered in the county clerk's files. Financial records, such as brokerage accounts or even income tax returns, are obtainable if they were laid on the public record in the course of a litigation, such as divorce. If the candidate was ever an officer or director of a corporation, all corporate records are available at either the Securities and Exchange Commission or the offices of the state secretaries of state. A rumor about a candidate's health that made its way in one newspaper story 10 years earlier will turn up in a name search in any number of computer files. Academic transcripts and military records are accessible to the skillful sleuth. The intimate picture, the recorded phone call, become the objective for freelance tabloid entrepreneurs looking for a big payday. If all that fails, there's always a detective agency or its high-tech equivalent, the deep research firm. If reporters, detectives, and tabloid entrepreneurs don't find the embarrassing fact, the research team in the opponent's camp is likely to discover it. And when they discover it, they'll give it to the press, ingratiating themselves and trying to destroy the opponent at the same time. A firm working for a candidate who is ruthlessly in pursuit of the killer fact about his opponent might even skirt legality by attempting to access telephone toll records, credit information, and bank statements, or even rummaging through an opponent's garbage. Sometimes I feel like I'm living during a political era in which what I value most, character, is endangered, what I admire most, humanity, is devalued. And what I feel most sensitive about, privacy, is denied. The third problem with the way we do our politics rests at the feet of politicians themselves. Politicians increasingly hesitate to lead from core convictions. Instead of taking bold positions that confront a big national problem or speak to a big national ambition, Politicians consult pollsters who tell them what people think and then provide them with phrases obtained from focus groups. Presidential campaigns today don't involve the thoughtful back and forth that typified the days of Woodrow Wilson or Theodore Roosevelt. In those days, Wilson would give a speech laying out his bold vision, and a few days later, Theodore Roosevelt would respond with his disagreements and his own separate vision. Today, each candidate speaks in pretested phrases. A political campaign becomes nothing more than dueling focus group phrases, no one of which falls below 60% approval among the electorate. The people find themselves manipulated toward a designated date, election day, after which, having rendered their manipulated verdict, they look at each other in the context of their lives and the country's future and say about the election, and say about the election what was that all about? Is it any wonder that elections rarely produce a mandate? The abolitionists, the progressive, the civil rights act activists, and even some of the early environmentalists 
were willing to take a public policy stand that was rooted in a moral view of the world and based on individual conviction. Politicians of principle don't always win, but they know who they are. The norm is for politicians to focus on process more than on principle. Ideas alienate as well as attract. And political principle is tart in many mouths, whereas vagueness tastes like honey. The fourth problem with American, the fourth problem lies with the American people themselves. They become spectators when they should be players. The basis of our democracy depends on people participating, not only as business executives, barbers, labor leaders, nurses, electricians, environmentalists, venture capitalists, or software designers, but as citizens. A citizen's first obligation is to think of the whole. Do what's best for the country, not just what's best for the individual or the group. That capacity to see the whole requires an interested and informed electorate, but it assures a far-sighted democracy. Novelist John Ralston Saul once said, individual rights protect us from society, but for those rights to have any meaning requires that individuals fulfill their obligations to society. The first citizen obligation is to vote. Today, too many people ignore it. And too many others dispense with their primary democratic duty by sitting at home watching TV as candidates duel in negative commercials and then deciding which of these two candidates they like least and voting for the other one. For us to be able to shape our common future requires citizens who get beyond anger, apathy, or disconnectedness and think about that future with their neighbors in a way that produces the same pictures of it running through all of their minds. The fifth problem with American democracy relates to our current paradox of interest group politics. We need to escape its clutches. Life is more than the squabbling of groups competing for a part of the public treasury. Yet everything from the way politicians raise campaign money to the way Congress organizes its hearings is premised upon this fragmented reality. We've neglected to see that politics as conflict has a narrow range. What one group gains, all of us lose. Reality becomes numbers, not feelings or associations or shared dreams. Politics as conflict ignores the revolutionary story of our common American origins. It demeans our common conscience. It denies the legitimacy of self-sacrifice for ideals. It leaves us fundamentally alone with little beyond group economic interests connecting us one to another. Individual liberation has been an important American theme. But in the process of embracing its appeal, we've neglected our neighbor. We've lost the language that can express what we owe each other as citizens and human beings. Our goal should be to make obligation as natural as liberation, and then to find that space between the two to live our lives in a way that charity will conquer self-indulgence. As historian Dan Rogers says, 
Wright's language offer a rich vernacular for claims against collectivity, but little about an individual's need for collectivity. So if those are the problems, what can we do to reinvigorate American democracy? Well, first, we need to reduce the role of money in American politics through fundamental campaign finance reform. There are three necessary prerequisites before reform will become a reality. First, a grassroots movement that will express citizen outrage with the present system and demand action. Next, some segments of American power in business, finance, academe, religious communities, need to step forward and say that the current system serves no one's interest and they'll put their clout behind reform. Third, a president, unencumbered by his own actions and willing to use his power for reform, seeing how it would give him unparalleled policy flexibility. The substance of what to do must start with a consideration of the constitutional situation, however. The Supreme Court in 1976 declared that money was the equivalent of speech, and any attempt to limit money in political campaigns would be an unconstitutional limitation of speech. In the summer of 1996, the court said further that political parties could spend unlimited amounts of money on so-called issue ads and could collect totally unrestricted money in any amount to pay for them. Those two rulings make reform very difficult. Yet there are five possible courses. One, confront the Supreme Court decision up front by amending the Constitution to say that federal, state, and local governments may limit the total amount of money spent in a political campaign in their jurisdiction. Or two, introduce a public financing approach in which those who agree to limits on total expenditures get public money but give up their right to raise any other money. Or three, begin a new court challenge in a locality with the most hospitable fact situation in hopes that the Supreme Court will reverse itself. Or four, Create a system of financing in which citizens can contribute up to $10,000 per year to an election fund that on Labor Day of election year will be divided equally among Republicans, Democrats, and our qualified independents with the stipulation that recipients would accept no other money. Five, accept some lesser changes because the Supreme Court ruling cannot be budged or circumvented. At a minimum, the least we should do is get rid of so-called soft money, which allows unlimited contributions to parties for use in ways that frankly amplify a candidate's message. In addition, we should address independent expenditures, which are expenditures, especially TV ads paid for by a third party, related to the campaign but coming neither from neither candidate's campaign treasury. There are two courses to control these TV expenditures. A regulatory approach could say that any TV station that accepted ads paid for by a non-campaign source 
would have to offer the opposite side equivalent time free of charge. A market-based approach would place 100% tax on all independently paid political commercials and give the proceeds to the opposite viewpoint for a related commercial. Beyond campaign finance reform, the second thing to reinvigorate democracy is reform of our political parties. We need more grassroots action and less media manipulation. We need more focus on service and less on opposition research. We need to see the political party as an extension of community, not simply an entity to flow money through in order to buy media and take polls. Politics is, above all, a people profession. You have to like people to stay at it. Yet the way we practice politics, there is less voter-to-voter personal contact. Why not establish a party mentoring group for children in the public schools? Why not a party basketball team at the Girls and Boys Club? Why not members of a Democrat, Democratic or Republican club who sit and read to the elderly or tutor kids on computers. These essential mission, the essential mission of political parties is supposed to be grassroots outreach, persuasion, coalition building. The ward healers of the old did those things to win elections. At a minimum, party headquarters could serve as a clearinghouse directing interested members to nonprofit organizations who work in the caller's area of interest. Today, the need for community involvement is as much for party members who miss the connection between politics and service as it is for candidates who want to mobilize troops for their election day. A party more connected to people's lives would give party members more opportunity to put their principles into practice. At a time when few candidates lead from core convictions and campaigns rarely raise big issues, young people turn off. If politics was a route to making things better at a level and in a form one person could see and feel, more young people would become involved. The irony is that as more people have focused on the politics of process, the more difficult it has become to get party members engaged. Campaigns tend to be run by consultants and a small clique of advisors at the top. Little thought is given or value ascribed to developing broad-based enthusiasm. People see politics less, not more, related to their lives. But it wasn't always that way. A few years ago, I visited a senior citizen apartment complex in Philadelphia. One of the elderly women talked about what it was like to live on a block in center Philadelphia on a hot summer night during the 1930s when FDR spoke on the radio. She said that the windows of the row houses were open and almost every home was tuned in to the president. Walking down the middle of that street, she said, you had stereo before there was stereo. (laughs) Why? Because everyone was listening to the president. They believed politics was directly related to their lives. That what the president said had a direct impact on them. Compare that to a few years ago 
during the Bush presidency when the networks refused to carry a presidential press conference. Or the time after the Republican sweep in 1994 when President Clinton opined that the president was still relevant. A third antidote to our current political circumstance is to make participation easier. A step in the right direction was taken in 1995 when a law was passed that required government agencies to make voter registration forms prominently available in their offices. This so-called motor voter bill added nearly 4 million people to the voting rolls. Still on election day in 1996, if 26% of the eligible voters had gone to the polls, they would have been denied the right to vote because they're not registered. In a country like Australia, voting is compulsory. If you fail, you're fined. If you fail to vote, you're fined. Before we reach that point, we need to consider innovations such as 24 or 48 hour voting on weekends, expansion of the right to vote by mail as they do now in Oregon, or expansion of same day voter registration for computerized voter rolls as they now do in Minnesota. Someday, we might even be able to vote through the World Wide Web. The only stick that might make sense would be to say that an election is valid only if 50% of the voters actually vote. The fourth thing we need as an antidote to our current economic, current political circumstance is a revolt of the middle. There never has been a time when it was easier to influence or participate in the political process. Party bosses no longer handpick nominees. Congressional meetings are more open to the public than ever. Courts and bureaucratic processes have opened up to greater citizen participation. New communication technologies make officials and candidates immediately accessible to constituents and voters. Yet the process seems dominated by extremists, while the middle frequently turns off. How many times have you heard somebody say something just like that? National convention delegates, financial contributors, campaign activists, candidates, candidates themselves are all more ideologically extreme than average voters. Perhaps extremists can fit more easily into the world of soundbites. Perhaps extremists embrace character assassination of their opponents more easily. As political science, scientist Morris Farino says, the kinds of demands on time and energy required to participate politically are sufficiently severe that only those with the most extreme views seem willing to pay the costs. Given that people cannot be forced to participate, the alternative is to transform participation. He suggests finding ways for people to participate which fit their time availability and allow them to do, do so without being physically present. The internet may offer just that kind of participation possibility for the upper middle class. The challenge will be to find new ways for all income levels to participate if they choose and when they choose. Texas populist Jim Hightower once said, there's nothing in the middle of the road but yellow stripes and dead armadillos. <laughs> Yet a political system without the voice of moderates invites a one-dimensional polarization that kills civility, drives out participation, and rarely solves our problems. 
The final thing that could help our politics is to speak and act more unabashedly from the perspective of ideals. Ideals are different than morality. The latter quickly becomes self-righteous, especially when it's unleavened by modesty. The former can serve as a compass. Politics should consist of concrete facts and ideals, not just facts and interests. Grand words have a role. They pull people together and lift them up. To see that public life is more interesting than special interests wallowing in the trough of subsidy, or more meaningful than the pursuit of power for power's sake, allows us to feel a continuity that extends across time. That's why Jefferson's or Lincoln's or FDR's words still speak to us today. To be a part of a big ambition, such as settling a continent, winning a war, protecting our natural world, extending equality to all races and both genders, reclaiming all our children to productive lives, can only be communicated with grand language. When ideals are joined with action, rooted in a correct assessment of the facts, the ingredients are present for transformation. Ideals and facts can join together to create a new common purpose for our country. We have common endeavors in war, sports, work, common beliefs in religion, political parties, associations which share our passions. Many of us come from common histories in small towns, big cities, suburban sprawls. Most of us have common desires for health, education, personal safety, and economic security. But we also want to belong and yearn to be a part of something outside of family to which we can give our allegiance and because of which we can believe our children can create a better future. To meet these yearnings requires a set of goals. It can be as simple as helping parents help their children, or as complex as defining America's role in the post-Cold War world. In both examples, ideals and facts fuse to convey why we have obligations to each other as citizens of our communities and as citizens of the world. If such a deep awareness really took hold it would be a form of revolution. Not as James Billington has written, in the violent, utopian, and secular sense the word is implied since the French Revolution, but in the older sense that the word was used in the American Revolution, a revolution of revolving back from a temporary tyranny to a pre-existing normalcy. The temporary tyranny has been the devaluation of the communal. The pre-existing normalcy, normalcy might rest no further back than the robust democracy of the early 19th century when the people ruled. Or it might go much further back in time to a time when all of God's people knew that the only kind of justice was justice for all. We must see that pushing the boundaries can be balanced by our ability to see the whole. We must realize each of us affects our neighbors and that none of us is truly alone. I think of the 
fleeting human connections in an Edward Hopper painting. At the same time, I see the picture of the earth taken from space. While one seems a kind of disconnection, it is the opposite. And while the other seems so clearly etched, it fills us with a sense of mystery. American democracy can be reformed. We can make it new again. We've done it before. All we have to do is begin. Thank you. Senator Bradley for that really penetrating examination of the problems of our democracy and your thoughts about what to do about it. We have about a half an hour to go. We'll adjourn promptly at 6.30. There are microphones in each of the aisles. And Bill will now take your questions. Senator Bradley. Um, for those of you that weren't here the last time, I'll just like to tell you how I like to do these questions. You raise your hand, I'll call on you, you ask the question. If I don't know the answer to the question or I think it's stupid, I'll go like this, you put your hand down, and I'll call on somebody else. By the fifth lecture, I think people will basically get it. Yes, ma'am. Senator Bradley, I have a question for you on America's role um, in the world, <clears throat> specifically regarding China. I've been very concerned um, that our policies towards China always seems to be based on our corporate business interests, but not on our strategic or our humanitarian beliefs that we supposedly hold. So I'd be interested in what you think about that and um, where you see China moving to in the next millennium, at least in the next century, and uh, our relationship with them. All right. Uh, thank you very much for the question. I think that how um, the United States handles the U.S.-China relationship will be terribly important to the long-term future of the world. My own personal view is that you can remain committed to the ideals of the country and have a productive relationship with China. I do not think our interests are served by cutting off uh, connection to China. I believe economic connection to China at this time serves a perverse and helpful purpose, and that is to open China up to influences from the outside. That will, I believe, move China along the path to the kind of open democratic system that we'd like to see it become. I do not think that... Um, I think that extension of most favored nation status to China is a part of the process that I'd like to see. I do not think withholding our market from China unless they do X, Y, and Z on human rights furthers the long-term interests of the country. And I also believe that any American who sits down with the Chinese counterpart, not just people in government, but in the academic community and in the business community, should have as a part of that discussion a view about human rights and how important it is to the long-term health of the world. 
and of China. I think that one need only look at some of the recent economic turmoil in Asia to see the value of a more open economy. When there's, when there's not an open political system, you have economic problems that you otherwise wouldn't have. And I think that's an important lesson to bring home to China as well. Harping to your, your last point about trying to elevate ideals and values into the discourse, one group that has done that with some success, uh, maybe not to my liking, has been the, the Christian right, and they're um, focusing on local school board elections and, and city councils and bringing their values uh, right into the political uh, debate. Mm -hmm. Can you comment in, on where you were trying to lead us and where that may differ or be similar to the Christian? In terms of process, it's a tried and true process. And that is a very good place to begin. In the local community, in the school board. And the real question is, if uh, someone has a different view than the Christian right and feels strongly enough about it, they should be in the same room engaging them in a debate. It is only when one side has the microphone and the other side doesn't show up that one side prevails. So I, I think that in terms of process, uh, you know, they're following a tried and true methodology. And I think that it uh, is one that other groups in America should follow as well. Um, in, your, in your examination of um, the harshness of the political process and the deep penetration of politicians' personal uh, lives. I was reminded of your 1978 campaign when your opponent made that... Wait a minute. You remember my 1978 yeah. campaign? Yeah. There is no question that this is the most precocious Stanford student <laughs> who has ever matriculated. Yeah, tell me about it. Yeah, I remember. Okay, yes. I, I was reminded of your political campaign of 1978. And uh, when your opponent made, as I remember, that, uh, that public uh, religious conversion, and you, you purposefully didn't bring it up in the campaign, and, I, and I'm, my question is, um, as a result of that, were there any positive repercussions? Did anybody look at that and say, this is something that we need to, to emulate? And if not, then what does that say about the deepness of really the, the problem uh, of... That issue. Okay. For, all, for those of you who didn't follow <laughs> my 1978 campaign in great depth, um, I uh, got the Democratic nomination and my Republican opponent uh, um, between the time of the primary and the general election converted to Catholicism. New Jersey's 40% Catholic there was an intimation by members of my own staff that there might be a political motivation for this <laughs> and that I could actually make some points if I seized that issue. I told my uh, staff to stay totally away from that issue. We're not going to touch that issue. Anybody's religious faith is off, uh, out of bounds in any kind of political campaign, and I will not mention one word about it, and I didn't. 
And um, you said, ask, did that, in your words, positive example have any larger ramifications? And the answer is no, because nobody knew about it. Uh, and how would they know about it? I wasn't going to tell them about it. And so um, I think it might be used as an example of where it's up to the candidate to draw the line. You, you have consultants who are paid to win. They think they know how to win, and they have a playbook that is about 20% of what a really good playback would be. But they keep running the same plays over and over and over and over. So when they come in with the playbook and say, you've got to do this, if you don't, you're going to lose, there should be more politicians who say, I'm prepared to lose. That's the only way you break the mold. You cannot break the mold if you accept all the premises of those who are operating with that small portion of the playbook. And so um, I don't know if that answers your question fully. And parenthetically, the, my opponent in that year um, was in 1976 a speechwriter for Ronald Reagan and after the election in 1978, uh, we've become very good friends. And I consider him to be uh, someone whose judgment and uh, advice I personally value, and not only in the public sphere, because we disagree from time to time, but uh, in the personal, personal sphere as well. And he's still a Catholic. <laughs> He's still a Catholic and has um, a lot of children. You mentioned earlier the importance of, in the past, people thought that what they did in politics and how they voted had a direct effect on their lives. It seems that one difference between now and then that you didn't touch on is that we're trained in our society today to think in terms of immediacy, sound bites, short term, emotional impact with the way we communicate through television today versus a more linear through written word of the past. My question for you is, is that really fundamental to everything you've talked about? And do we need to address that issue before any of the other things can happen? Well, you certainly have to address that issue. Um, among the things I'm personally doing now is uh, on the weekends, I have uh, two minutes uh, on the CBS Evening News in a segment called Where We Are, meaning where the country is, where we are as Americans. And I have uh, set out to uh, demonstrate that you don't have to do those things and you can still have people who want to watch and listen to you. And um, it's still an experiment. There are people in the news business who are constantly telling me that I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. But um, I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing until somebody says, you can no longer do it. <laughs> and so I think that, yeah, I think that even within the world of television, there are ways to try to be more substantive and less superficial. And uh, both that operate on an emotional level and an intellectual level. 
but it is a very strong undertow that ta- that's taking us all uh, away from the shores where we've had our best moments as a country. Yeah, if, if you don't mind. Um, it's not just the fact that we have to communicate through television. I think um, that it may also be that our brains as a society are designed to think in a more immediate way. So if I have a problem that I'm facing in life today, I don't think in terms of a linear solution to it, where I do something today and I may see results three or four years from now. And that seems to be a broader, more dangerous problem than TV by itself. Well, um, you're speaking for yourself. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I'm a total TV. Uh, (laughs) When I used to play basketball, we used to say that the really good player was the player that could see the pass that leads to the pass that leads to the basket. Not the player that could see the basket or the pass that leads to the basket. So I continue to believe, whether it's basketball or politics, that if you're able to see, think linearly, think strategically, then you ultimately have a better chance of winning than if you're locked in tactics. And so you simply have to try to push yourself out of the immediacy of the moment and think more strategically, whether it's about a public policy issue or whether it's about uh, your own personal circumstance. Ah. (laughs) The the, uh, gentleman shouted out from the back of the room in a kind of, you want to know what time the program is. Uh, it's on Saturday, and uh, it's on different times in different places. Here it's on at 5.30, I think, on Saturday, 5.30. And next week I'll be doing a piece that um, I filmed in Marin County in a graveyard. <laughs> if that's not a good enough tease, I'll elaborate. Yes. I'd like to ask an international question, then a domestic one, if I might. The international one is, after having spent about 30 years working abroad, uh, most of the last six or seven years in Russia and Eastern Europe, uh, the most irresponsible idea I've heard of since the end of the Cold War is the eastward expansion of NATO. Can you give me a sound, serious rationale for that? Uh, no, I can't give you a sound, serious rationale. I can give you the rationale of the proponents, but I'm kind of on record saying I didn't think it was a good idea. Okay. I can give you a context if you'd like to have me attempt yeah, to do that. Um, I think that uh, the decision came out of uh, an exhaustion at the end of the Cold War, a conceptual exhaustion. So rather than think about how we're going to deal with a new reality, Um, in Russia and in Central Europe, we simply followed the old model and simply said, well, let's extend it a little further. Let's just continue and make it move a little further. I personally think that uh, that's that's how this happened. Now, there's also, I was a little suspicious when I saw the president endorsed by Helmut Kohl in Milwaukee. Um, And I think, however, the domestic political reasons that some people say drove this, um, I believe are not nearly as significant. Coming from a state that has people that speak 120 different languages in their homes, 
um, and having the largest Hungarian-American population in the country and one of the largest Polish-American populations in the, fam in the country, I don't think that there is that kind of payoff uh, electorally for that kind of decision. So I think it came out of an exhaustion. I think that also um, if, um, you know, you can play this one way or the other. Um, you can say that Helmut Kohl is the last European Chancellor of Germany and that he decided that he wanted to go forward because he wanted to embed Germany in Europe in a fundamental sense and this was another way to do it. Another way to look at this is to say that um, by expanding NATO East, the Germans have gotten essentially commitment of the United States as well as the other NATO members to protect uh, their East in a way that they did not have prior to this. And uh, that combined with the Euro in, uh, in the next year or so could give them a position of dominance in Central Europe guaranteed multilaterally through uh, institutions that are European in nature. Now, there are problems with that argument too, but those are the two arguments that are, are frequently made. I think that um, the arguments that the Congress will be debating, what's the cost of this going to be, and um, will, it, uh, will it turn Russia into uh, a nationalist, xenophobic nation, uh, even more than they are now, I think uh, are not, not the critical arguments. It's interesting. Uh, if I can comment briefly. Yeah. What's uh, your view? Uh, no, no, don't give me your view, but just. Well, it's it's insane. Mm. And thank uh, you very much. <laughs> <laughs> A usual measured response. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the latest rationale uh, I heard on that and the criticism that it's too expensive and it costs $30 billion and Poland and Hungary should invest their resources elsewhere. They reanalyzed the estimated cost as well. It looks more like a billion and a half because territory like Poland is so flat it's cheap to defend. You would have thought, somebody would have thought of that in 1939, wouldn't you? <laughs> Well, <laughs> the, the domestic question, though, is I, I didn't follow your 1978 campaign, but I do remember Mr. Schultz speaking at the University of Chicago Law School in 1960. So this is a question for him? <laughs> no, it's, it's an introduction. When you were at the business school, I, I remember your opening comment. You banged on the table and said it's time for a revolution. Uh, I, I don't know which revolution you were promoting at the time. But it was very interesting. My uh, question about your revolution is... Uh, you know, what grassroots movement or organization do you intend to establish, and how could people like me devote maybe 50% of my time to it? Um, I don't intend to establish a grassroots organization myself, but if you're offering 50% of your time, uh, uh, there are a number that I would uh, I could suggest. Uh, Colin Powell has something called America's Promise that's kind of a channeling agent for commitments for people to do something about the lives of children in America today. If that's your interest, there are five or six organizations in that group that would be uh, tremendous. I think you have to ask yourself, particularly as someone who's been interested in foreign affairs for 30 years, um, can you get the kind of satisfaction that you would like 
in dealing with the local. And if you can, uh, there are infinite numbers of possibilities for you. If you want to be the architect, then probably there are not a whole lot of opportunities for you. But uh, grassroots uh, organizations abound. They're in the environmental area. They're in areas that help children. Um, I named several in my talk. Um, and you have a clearinghouse with uh, America's Promise. And if you're serious on children, you can hit uh, www.kidscampaigns.org. And um, it will tell you, it's a Ben Foundation, and it will tell you any number of ways that you could affiliate with an organization. And I would urge you to do it. Uh, you list, oh, you, you listed, I believe, five ideas on campaign finance reform, or five scenarios. Yeah. And you said there should be uh, something more that people in the middle would do in the political process. I wonder if you'd care to make some predictions. And I guess my bias is that our organizations like Common Cause and League of Women Voters have very limited impact if they're examples of something in the middle. Um, well, uh, for the last year, I've joined with uh, former Senator Alan Simpson, a Republican, as the co-chair of something called Project Independence, which is run by Common Cause and another nonprofit with the objective of um, trying to build a grassroots movement for fundamental campaign finance reform. We obtained by June 30th uh, a little over a million signatures with 55,000 people across the country carrying petitions urging the Congress to take action. That's a beginning. It is not, uh, it's not a movement. But um, I think, as I said, that's one of the necessary prerequisites to getting campaign finance reform. Without it, I think that you have a fallback strategy. And that fallback strategy is now being followed in a number of states, Massachusetts, Arizona, Missouri, which is to um, identify who the players are in the debate in the state, not go to the grassroots, but identify who the players are and then try to put on the uh, ballot initiatives that will require campaign finance reform in that particular state. That has met with more success than has the national effort. And I think that's where the energies will go in the years to come by either groups that are interested in public finance or groups that are interested in generic campaign finance reform. In Maine, as you know, such an initiative was placed on the ballot and passed and is now in operation in the state of Maine. So while the action might not be in Washington, it is out there in the country, and therefore I'm not pessimistic about the possibility of uh, bringing off this kind of reform. Will the courts allow it? I mean, will, will they survive court challenge? Uh, it depends on what the specific language is. Uh, as you know, the California initiative was declared unconstitutional uh, about two weeks ago. Um, and I think uh, another state slipped my mind also had an um, unconstitutional uh, question raised. So as I said at the beginning, that's 
we're in a, in a very difficult environment. But it goes to what, what do you think money threatens democracy? If you don't think money threatens democracy, then, you know, this is not a, your cup of tea. If you do, you have to say, well, how far will I go to try to save democracy? And different people will give different answers here. Some will say, we'll amend the Constitution. Others will say, we'll start a new case at a local level with the hospitable facts situation. Others will say, well, it's about time we just did public financing, like the presidential races. Um, and it depends on really where your own interests are. But I do think it is possible to get some reform. I mean, there are other times in American history when democracy has been impeded by the courts. 19th century is a good example of that. I mean, in the 19th century, you know, if you were a black man and walked into a hardware store, the owner of the store could say, no, I'm not selling to, I'm not selling to you this hammer. And the Supreme Court said, well, that's freedom of contract. You don't have to do that. And so that was in the 1880s. And we waited until uh, Thurgood Marshall pointed out that this kind of action in many different places was a, strain, was a restraint on trade, and then it was thrown out. But the real question is, who's going to be, we're going to wait 40 or 50 years. By that time, uh, the special interest will have buildings in Washington, not offices. Are you ready for the last question? Yes, sir. Pick them. <laughs> That's your job. You, you mentioned in your, in your remarks the importance of having talented people with sound character in the positions of leadership in government, but at the same time you mentioned how the current media environment and the difficulties of campaigns makes it very unattractive for these kinds of people to enter politics. If we think about the future of politics and specifically cultivating the next generation of leaders, what specific steps do you think we should take to try and encourage those sort of talented people of character to come into politics rather than pursuing other careers? Um, I think that um, a clear call for, for a clear cause would be one way to do it. Um, whether it's helping parents help their children, whether it's cleaning up the environment, whether it's finally getting this uh, racial issue behind us so that we can see people for who they are and not for the color of their skin or the shape of their eyes. But one of the key things is the substance of the call. And um, then I think it's important that uh, people focus on something that they can do. And that's why in my talk I said, you know, I've done a lot of this, train people how to do campaigns. But maybe what we need to do as parties is, tr is put people together with real problems that they can then solve face to face. And then you need a person who's going to be the focal point of such a call. And um, you need those three, those three uh, characteristics, I think. Senator Bradley. Thank you all Everyone join and thank you for a wonderful afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming over. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U.
and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.